In this episode of Flying Smarter, I start by looking at why we board in deep lane on the left side of the aircraft. Then, law professor Ganesh Siddharaman joins me to share his insights on why flying is miserable and what we can do about it from a regulatory perspective. Welcome to episode 49 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. So the next episode of Flying Smarter is going to be episode 50. There's some exciting things in store and I don't really want to unveil everything now, but I can give you a sneak peek and say that there's going to be a giveaway, and then throughout our December episodes you're going to hear from our guests throughout the year. You can subscribe to us on your podcast platform and follow us on social media so you don't miss out. The links to all those accounts are in the episode description. And episode 50 is going to be out on December 4th, so make sure you tune in for then. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Why do we board on the left side of the plane? In the last episode of Flying Smarter, I talked a lot about boarding and one of the questions that came up was why we get on the plane on the left side. Well, you might have noticed that a lot of operational activity usually happens on the right side of the aircraft, including loading and unloading bags, cargo, and catering. Moving passengers on the left prevents boarding and deplaning from interfering with these activities and prevents these tasks from interfering with boarding and deplaning, especially in cases when passengers are walking on the ramp. But why did we choose the left side instead of the right? Why didn't we do things the other way around and load bags and catering on the left and board on the right? Well, there's a bit of history involved. These days, planes are typically guided into their parking spots by ground crew or electronic systems. However, there was a time when planes were parked differently, when they were parked closer to buildings and aircraft captains who sit on the left side of the plane had to look out their window to judge wing clearance. As it was the side that would be closer to the building, passengers would board on the left side. There's also an idea out there that there may be some nautical tradition involved. The left side of a ship is known as the port side because back in the day, they typically docked on the left side and passengers would get on and off that side, hence the name port. It was therefore a natural progression for airliners and airports to follow suit. Did you know that there are a few airlines that don't fly on Christmas Day? Despite the holiday season being one of the busiest times for the air travel industry, there are some airlines that don't fly on December 25th itself. Low-cost carriers Ryanair and Jet2 don't fly any flights on Christmas Day, and nor does Irish flight carrier Aer Lingus. Along the same lines, Dublin Airport is also closed on Christmas Day, although there are a small number of staff members who still work at the airport. Ganesh Raman is a law professor at Vanderbilt University and the director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. He teaches and writes about constitutional law, the regulatory state, economic policy, democracy, and foreign affairs, and is the author of numerous books, including his latest book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. In addition, he is a member of the Federal Aviation Administration's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee, and he's received numerous prestigious awards and fellowships and was previously a visiting assistant professor at Yale Law School and a fellow and lecturer at Harvard Law School. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the podcast. Ganesh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you just authored a book where the first part of the title is Flying is Miserable. What do you mean when you say that? Well, 
I think for a lot of people, we understand flying is miserable. I mean, imagine the last time you had a conversation with someone who said, I'm really excited to sit in a small seat in the back of the airplane. Or the last time someone said, oh, I'm just thrilled that I'm going to be connecting through Atlanta or Dallas. Uh, no one says that. And, and no one says that because we all understand that the experience of flying for, for us has gotten more frustrating and, and more irritating. You know, we have smaller seats, we have shrunken overhead bin space, there's often delays or cancellations. You're usually connecting now through one of these big fortress hubs. And that's all just the personal experience. You know, when we zoom out, flying's miserable in another way. And that's the industry has been having a lot of problems too. And it's not just COVID-19 and what happened uh, there, but, you know, airlines have gone bankrupt over and over again. We've had exhaustion from pilots and flight attendants and other airline employees. There are a lot of cities, even midsize and pretty large cities that are losing service. In fact, 74 cities have lost service from one of the big airline carriers just since COVID. So I think if you look at it as, as an individual who likes to fly, and you know I like to fly and, and, and do it a lot, or if you look at it as someone who's watching the industry, there's a, there's a lot going on that is kind of miserable. Now, the perspective that you take from your background and your expertise is a regulatory one, and I don't think we have the time or desire to spoil the whole book, um, but I was hoping that you could provide a bit of an overview on regulation and deregulation and how that plays out into the present day. Yeah, well, the, the argument of the book is that flying's miserable really for a very simple reason. I can sum up in, in just two words, public policy. And you know, if you think about it, we make choices as a country. We, we choose to make sure that children's toys are safe, that water is clean and we can drink it, that everyone can get electricity, even if you live in a, in a rural place. And these are policy choices, and, and we accomplish them through public policy. And for airlines, the biggest, most important policy choice that we made as a country was to deregulate the industry in 1978. And that one event really shaped everything. And, and it created all the miseries that we have today, all the things I was just talking about, about seats and fees and connections and bankruptcies and so on. And you know, in my mind, the way to think about the history, and you really have to know some of the history to, to get a sense of how regulation and deregulation has worked, um, is that it moved in, in three periods. Uh, if you put aside the early days with the Wright brothers and, and the kind of very, very beginning of flying. And so the first system I call the kind of stable, reliable system. And that was from the 1930s to the 1970s. And during this period, federal regulators allocated the routes that airlines would fly. They set prices. They made sure airlines didn't go bankrupt. They made sure they didn't need bailouts. And they treated airlines like public utilities. It was a period of regulated competition. Starting in the 1970s, advocates for deregulation said that this approach was effectively creating a cartel and that market competition would be better. And, you know, they had a great pitch. Their pitch was basically, imagine if you could have 200 stable airlines with cheaper prices and no real downsides. All we need to do is just let the airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and let them charge whatever they want. And what happened with airline deregulation in 1978 is, is we didn't end up in this dream world that the deregulators wanted, we really got phase two, which was a Hunger Games. Airlines were thrown into this period of cutthroat competition 
where we had airlines trying to break their unions and engaging in anti-competitive behaviors to push out new entrants, dozens of bankruptcies and mergers, all kinds of chaos in the 1980s. And after that decade, over the over the couple of decades since then, I think what we seen is that we've settled into phase three, which is monopoly capitalism. So airlines today are, there's a very small number of them. We actually have less competition today than we had during regulation in the 70s. Top four airlines have a larger market share than they had in 1977. You don't have much choice. And you get, kind of, often you get bad service at bad prices. And if you're sitting in the back of coach, you might end up with a bad back in the process. So I think right now where we are is in a place where, you know, we've seen that deregulation unleashed market competition, but but in this sector, it didn't really work. We don't actually get the benefits of competition. And what we really need to learn from that history is that we need a form of regulated competition here. And so I think both of us, and you've mentioned it a little bit, can think of all sorts of ways that uh, there are challenges or negative experiences in the in, in the world of air travel, whether that's on the passenger side, right, from cancellations to service, like geographic access or actual customer service, and then on the employee side and the airline side too, right? Like you were saying, bankruptcies, employees being overworked, um, the quote-unquote pilot shortage, things like that. And I'm hoping that you could help uh, our listeners understand a little bit better drawing the line between uh, regulation and deregulation and the impact on the everyday experience that... Uh, everyone faces uh, out there at airports and on airplanes. Yeah, so so to dig a little bit deeper into it, under regulation, as I mentioned, the the way things worked was we saw airlines, you know, policymakers saw airlines as a kind of public utility or an infrastructure for transportation. And the idea was like other ones, what we want is stable and reliable service. And that meant regulating prices and it meant regulating routes to make sure that lots of places in the country got served. And that system worked, it wasn't perfect, but it worked pretty well for, for four decades. And then what happened is we got rid of those rules where the federal regulators would set the routes that airlines can fly to and set the, the price terms and instead said, let's just do it under market prices. And so the challenge is when you move into that system, what airlines are interested in is what makes them the most money. And that could be cutting costs. So maybe you shrink the seats a little bit, you can add an extra row and that uh, you make a little bit more money that way. It also means increasing revenues. You know, you charge for taking that extra bag or paying for your meal or, you know, even picking your seat early. Um, and that's some extra revenue. And so for, for passengers, you know, this kind of dynamic is partly a function of the underlying system that says airlines should be trying to maximize profits at the expense of passengers. And, and that's not how it actually worked in regulation. In the regulated system, we said, you know, what we want is reliable service everywhere. And so in some places that may not be economical. You have a lot of small towns, mid-sized cities, rural places where, where you might not have a lot of access. And you know, if you only have one airline flying to that place and it's a monopolist, you're going to get really high prices um, and people aren't going to be able to fly. And so we said, we're going to require airlines to serve some of these places and we're going to set the prices. So prices were generally set based on mileage by the by the end of the regulated period to make sure that they weren't unfair. You know, equal fares for equal miles was one of the principles. The farther you flew, you paid more. Uh, and you pay the same price for a flight that was the same length. And so under that system, you know, we just thought about this differently, what the purpose of the system was, what its benefits and drawbacks were, and what we wanted out of it. And so I think for passengers, that's that's a real place of how that how that uh, how deregulation has made an impact. The the other place 
is that deregulation really reshaped how airlines operate across our geography. So for airlines, it's much more efficient to route a lot of their flights through a big hub. Um, they get massive economies of scale and network effects for, for doing that. That's just a way of saying uh, in kind of economistic language that it's more efficient for them to do it that way. But the downside to having a big hub is that a lot of cities lose their hubs or lose service altogether that are nonstop between cities and have to route through the hub to fly anywhere. The other downside is that if you have you know, high winds in Dallas, for example, or a big weather event at one of these hubs, it actually can create cascading cancellation and delays throughout the entire country. And so I think some of our problems are a function of allowing this concentration at hubs. And you know, one, one thing that's really astonishing, you know, I think if, if you look back in 1977, Delta had 21% of Detroit airport and, and that was their, they were the number one player in Detroit. Now they have more than 70%. You know, that's a huge shift in how much power they have at one airport. And you, know, you see that in a lot of other airports too. That creates real problems as well. When you have monopoly or near monopoly service, one thing that people have found is the lack of competition means higher prices. And so that's another problem that we've seen that's really only emerged because of deregulation, because airlines can now choose to organize their operations however they like, instead of having to serve a wider set of places. So I think when people hear this, uh, there's going to be some pushback on what you're saying uh, with people thinking like in today's industry, there's all sorts of things that we've never seen before, like live flat seats and free Wi-Fi and all sorts of new technology, uh, or that there's more flying than ever before and that I can go to more places uh, in the world than I can in the past. Uh, or people might say, well, I'm perfectly happy having the option of choosing between the most basic fares on Spirit or Frontier versus business class on United, Delta, or American. And they'll say, well, I'm quite happy with the way the industry is right now. You know, we have all sorts of things that we didn't have in the past. What would you say to, to that type of thinking? So it's a great set of points. And, and the question is not, can we get none of those things or all of them? The question is, what balance of things do we get under which regimes? And can we pass policies that prevent some of the worst things that we don't like about flying while keeping a lot of the good ones. And so if you just think about technological change, one thing that you saw during the regulated period was enormous amount of technological improvements. You had the move first from uh, prop planes to jets, and then from jets to wide-bodied jets. I mean, these were huge technological advancements, and all the airlines moved forward with them. Because prices were regulated, you also had competition for service quality. So what you saw was a race to the top on service, not a race to the bottom on service. And so some of these things will sound totally crazy to us today, but you know there were piano bars in airplanes, not in the airport. In the airplane itself, they'd have a piano bar. People were serving steak and champagne. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a period where in order to win passengers, you had to make the flying experience better. And so I think you would get improvements like that, even under these other systems. We saw it in the past. I think we would still continue to see it. And, you know, maybe they would have moved in, in slightly different ways, you know, uh, but I think we would have seen those improvements even without deregulation. I don't think deregulation caused uh, the technological improvements that we've seen. So, so I don't think we have to make that choice. And, and, you know, in the book, what I argue is we should learn from history, both in the regulated period, which had its pros and its cons, and from the period of deregulation, which has had its pros and its cons, and that what we need to do is think about ways to fix flying that address some of the downsides 
um, and keep some of the benefits. And you know, I think that's a very different way of looking at it. We shouldn't have an all or nothing mindset when it comes to policy. No, and uh, I, I think that's definitely fair enough. Now, moving on. So, of course, as we all know, the aviation industry has a lot of players, um, ranging from government entities uh, to airports and ground handling companies and all that. Um, I know your focus is on airlines, but I'm curious uh, specifically about airports. Uh, what's sort of the role of airports in all this? Well, it's a really great question. And, you know, as I mentioned before, airports are a really critical part of the airline network. And the way they operate has changed a lot since deregulation. So, you know, before deregulation, you had a lot of airports that had a number of different carriers going to them because the regulators tried to keep up competition, um, a measure of competition, but competition uh, between lots of different airports. So when you look at the kind of biggest airports, you'd see one airline that was the dominant one with sort of between 20 or 30 percent uh, of the market share at that at that airport. You know, as I mentioned, now you see air, airlines with 70, 80 percent market share uh, at some of these airports. And that has really big effects. You know, w- one challenge uh, with with what are called fortress hubs, these hubs where uh, the airline has, you know, real dominance at them and can block out other competitors um, is precisely that they block out other competitors. Uh, you know, if you're in a, a big hub city, you may actually have fewer flight choices than if you're in a place with a lot of competition. And one of the challenges we've seen is that in those places that are hubs, if you're flying to or from one of them, you actually might pay higher prices than even if you were connecting through that same airport and going somewhere else. So that's a real challenge, I think, for for people that really hits consumers. The other thing, and, you know, I already mentioned, you know, weather events, but but the other thing that I think is really important is the shift in economic inequality and economic growth that happens from having an airport to not having one. So when you're a city that has an airport, it means you have access to transportation to a lot of different places in the country. And so if you want to start a business, if you want to keep running a business, if you want to expand your business, if you want to be a tourist and go visit that city, if you're going to host a convention, you can do it in a city that has a big airport. But if you're a city and you lose your airport, um, or you lose all flights, or you even lose having a hub to being downgraded to to not having a hub, that could be devastating for an economy because it means fewer businesses, fewer jobs, fewer conventions, fewer tourists, um, all of those things. And so, you know, one thing that I think is important as we think about the kind of airline and uh, airport policy we want is, you know, how do we think about questions of geographic and regional economic growth? and equality. And I think one of the values we should have is we should want a country where it's easy to get around to a lot of different places by air, in part because we're such a big country. And that means uh, in a lot of situations, um, air travel is going to be the quickest way to get places. I want to switch gears now and do a little bit of forward thinking. And I have two questions for you in this regard. So what's one incremental change that you could see happening in the next few years to improve air travel? Well, I think a small thing that that I think we're already seeing and, and that I'd be surprised if we don't see, and I'll actually give you two. Um, one is some sort of penalties or accountability or funding for passengers who have, you know, extreme delays and cancellations. And I think that's something that people have been, you know, agitating for for a long time beyond just getting refunded the money if your flight is canceled. But if you're really put in a place where, uh, you're put out in a significant way because of a delay. You know, we all rely pretty heavily on the airlines for for whatever we're doing. Um, and so I think that's a plausible thing that, you know, I could imagine uh, moving forward. 
A second thing is, you know, I think in the, I think Congress, uh, it would be surprising to me if we don't see them in the next few years put some more money into air traffic control. Um, and that's another place where I think, you know, we could really use some additional funding and support to improve those systems. Um, and that would be helpful for, for the airline system as a whole. Yeah, for sure. And I think especially in the past year or two, we've sort of seen the effects of both of those two issues play out very much out in at airports and airlines uh, for people across the country. The second part of that question is, if you sort of had a magic wand uh, situation, if there's if you could make any one major change that you would implement when it comes to airline or air, air travel industry regulation, what would it be? Well, I'm going to cheat here and, and give you two also, but they're related. Yeah. <laughs> so let's count that as one. Um, so, so the first one is, I think that uh, Congress or the regulators should really crack down on concentration at airports. You know, this is a, an anti-competitive thing that we know raises prices when there isn't competition at uh, these big airports. And, you know, I think there's different ways you can do it, but really getting at shrinking the percentage of power that a single airline has at an airport and instead allowing, even if you don't expand the number of big airlines we have, and we just have our same four big airlines, if you had more choice and more competition at the big airports, I think you would see um, a lot of benefits to come from that. The second and related thing is I, I do think we really need to tackle this question of geographic inequality. And and in the book, I propose a couple of different solutions. And you know, uh, everyone listening will have to, to get the book for all the juicy details, but, but I'll preview, preview them briefly. One is I think you could establish a kind of NFL draft pick style system for cities. So you could have a lot of small, medium-sized cities. Um, you know, Congress could set some criteria for who's eligible. And then basically the biggest airlines would get draft numbers. They'd get a draft pick and they'd be able to pick cities from the list. And they could they would have to serve those cities for a period of years at a regulated affordable price um, with a minimum number of flights per day. And, um, and that would be a way to really get access to a lot of different places. Uh, and it would just be a way to say to the airlines, you know, you get a lot of privileges from us, the taxpayers and the federal government and being able to run your businesses. You have an obligation that you serve some of the places that, you know, might be a little bit lower volume, might be a little bit less profitable. But as a country, we really want to make sure there's access all across our country to, to air service. So I think that's one way to do it. Uh, I propose another approach in, in the book, too, which which is uh, to stick with the football metaphor, what I call the regional conference system. Um, and here you could say we're going to have like a regional airline, like Southern Airlines that would operate in the South. And between small cities and big ones, um, they would have, they'd be granted a monopoly um, and have to serve at an affordable regulated price. Think of it like a utility. But there would be competition between all the bigger and mid-sized uh, airports. Um, and, and any airline, you know, in a normal competitive way like we have it now would, would operate in those places. And one of the things that I think would be great about this model is you, you'd set it up so that all of the big airlines would be able to interconnect with the regional carrier. So, you know, if you wanted to go, say, from uh, Atlanta to Birmingham on Southern Air, Air Airlines, uh, you could do that on Delta or United or Southwest or American. Uh, once you got to Atlanta, your bags would would seamlessly connect over and so on. So, so everyone would have access to that utility-like service. And I think that would be a way to increase access to some of the smaller cities that aren't the kind of big hubs that we have. 
Ganesh Raman is a law professor and the director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. As a very accomplished lawyer and scholar, he's authored several books with a focus on constitutional law, state regulation, economic policy, and foreign affairs. His latest book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It, offers insight into the state of air travel in the United States from a regulatory perspective. You can learn more about Ganesh and his work and his books on his website and find him on X or Twitter, and we'll have links to all that in the episode description. Well, Ganesh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. That brings us to the end of episode 49 of Flying Smarter. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the next episode is going to be episode 50 and there are some fun things planned, so be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform and follow us on social media so you don't miss out on what we have in store. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Music